0: The following sermon is from 5th Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of 5th Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to fapc.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with 5th Avenue Presbyterian Church. The scripture reading, there are two this morning, begins with 1 Corinthians, Paul writing about a sacred memory to the church at Corinth. Let us listen for God's word to us. For I received from the Lord what I also handed to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, and from the vision of John of Patmos in the Apocalypse, the fifth chapter, the first half of the sixth verse. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is the word of God. For the people of God. Thanks be God all I made was one mistake how much more will I have to pay why can't you think it over why can't you forget about the past it's a love song second chance by the band 38 special why can't you forget about the past It is a desperate, disquieting, discursive detour. On second thought, was it really that bad? By the band of special Americans who want to revisit and revise American history until the stain of racism is washed clean, our history as white as snow. Why can't you forget about the past? I was a young professor here in the Northeast teaching New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. In that role, I was often invited to teach and preach in area churches as I came, as we've already said, to teach and preach here at Fifth Avenue several times. This time, I had preached in a white congregation in Princeton, and I had opened the sermon with a recollection of what I continued to believe was an act of overt, systemically authorized racial prejudice at my high school during my teenage years. Weeks later, I was invited by a colleague to discuss the sermon over lunch. During the meal, we talked about the biblical story I had used, Jesus and the Syrophoenician Woman, in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Mark. We discussed my interpretation of the text and then the moves I made to link what was happening in the Syrophoenician Woman's encounter with Jesus and his disciples and my own recollection of racially marginalized African-Americans. We talked about my growing up in segregation, what it meant to me, how it influences the way I interpret the Bible like the biblical text we were discussing. It was a helpful, even hopeful conversation, the kind that one expects to have in a seminary classroom or broader seminary collegial context. Even so, throughout the meal and the accompanying verbal interchange, I felt as though he was containing something, struggling to let it out, but reeling the words and himself back in, just in case they weren't the right words, or perhaps worried that they were the right words, but he couldn't say them in the right way. We finished what was a wonderful meal. Even more wonderful he paid seems like a pretty okay day. I actually got a free lunch. Yes, I know there is no free lunch. I paid on the walk back to campus. Just about when we were going to head our separate ways, he finally found the courage, perhaps the comfort, to release the words he had been so gingerly guarding. He stopped walking, prompting me to halt alongside him. He reached out and he took hold of my left arm up near the shoulder, a gentle caress, a sign of affection an indication that he felt he could trust me to hear what he was saying and the spirit of collegiality with which he was saying it. I just keep wondering, he said softly, hesitantly. There have been so many years, so much change since slavery, since segregation. Look at you. Look at where you are, what you've done. I just wonder sometimes, when will black people be able to let go of the past? This reliving it, this readdressing it, it's destroying us. When will black people just let it go? How much more will I have to pay? Why can't you think it over? Why can't you forget about the past? It seems sincere, I felt lost. For a moment I looked away at the beautiful buildings of Princeton Theological Seminary and I felt this scream rising up in my throat. Ironically, the sermon I had preached, the one that had precipitated this encounter, was entitled, Makes Me Want to Holler. I didn't holler. I stared at him and then ahead into the empty middle distance. Why can't you think it over? Why can't you forget about the past? Because to paraphrase William Faulkner, the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. You can't forget what keeps happening over and over and over again. I can't not remember growing up in segregation in the middle of the 20th century when American neighborhoods and schools are voraciously resegregating here at the beginning of the 21st century. I can't not remember Mega Evers in his 20th century driveway being murdered when Ahmed Aubrey is murdered on his 21st century exercise run. I can't not remember four little black girls, Addie Mae Collins, Carol Denise McNair, Cynthia Wesley, and Carol Rosamond Robertson, bombed in their 20th century Birmingham church when Breonna Taylor is shot in her 21st century bedroom. I can't not remember the 20th century display of Emmett Till's brutalized body when George Floyd's 21st century body is strangled to death on international television. I can't not remember the racial animus enabled, perpetuated, and defended, even theologically defended, the enslavement of African-Americans when a mutated, more subtle, but no less vicious strain of that viral hatred of blackness, black bodies, and black people enables, perpetuates, and defends line neighborhoods, deflated economic opportunity, inferior schools and the inferior opportunities that result from them, inferior health care, and the too often inequitable, unrestrained, and unacceptable wielding of violence by government agents and agencies I can't forget about the past no Christian can Jesus at least the earthly Jesus whom we quote all the time is in the past his living his ministering his dying his resurrecting they are all in the past and we Christians refuse to forget that past because he asked us not to betrayed, broken body, remember, covenant, new, blood, remember, the Lord's death, your Lord's death, proclaim it so we will remember. So claims the apostle Paul, I received from the Lord, he says, what I handed on to you. I remembered from the Lord what I handed on to you so you would remember how prophetically he lived, how horrendously he died. Do you remember Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? The enslaved African-Americans who sung that spiritual were asking that question. Do you remember? John of Patmos remembers to the singers of the slave spiritual. He responds with a vision. Caught up in the spirit, John was there. John remembers when they crucified his Lord. Like a lamb, he says, standing as if slaughtered. John remembers Jesus dying like that lamb. Innocently, sacrificially, tragically, brutally. Why would Jesus want us to remember that? Trauma is something we do our best to forget. But every time we break bread in the the meal, we are to remember how the Roman soldiers broke Jesus' body on the cross. Every time we pour the wine in the meal, we are to remember how Jesus' blood spilled from the wounds on his head, his hands, his feet, and his side. Every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are supposed to remember and testify to that grisly death. Why can't we just forget about this past? Why can't we just let it go? Sometimes we want people to remember something tragic so they won't ever let it happen again. Remember the mistakes of the past so we aren't doomed to repeat them. And on first blush, that makes sense. Remember how humans enslaved other humans so outraged we won't let it happen again. Remember how humans segregated some humans off into red line communities, unequal schools, diminished educational opportunities, impoverished economic policies, substandard health care, prejudiced policing, racial hatred, so we won't let it happen again. Shouldn't that be why we remember? Remember how it hurt. Remember how it destroyed so we can resolve to combat that hurt and contest that destruction in the future. Jesus, though, at the meal isn't focused on the future. He's looking back at a past that hasn't happened yet, our past, at a past that is just now about to take shape, at the past that is looming up like a cross before his disciples, his arrest, his torture, his death. Keep looking back on it. Keep reenacting it. Keep remembering it. You can't stop it. You can't change it. But you must remember it over and over and over again, doing the same thing, over and over again, with the same result. Some people call that insanity. Other people call it practice. Jesus calls it communion. He wants us to commune with the memory of his devastation until it is seared into our memories emblazoned on our hearts. Why can't we just forget about this past? Three quarters of a century later, we can't forget the devastation and hope that are bundled together in the memories of World War II. It began and ended before I was born, and yet because its stories are told over and over again in our collective consciousness, I actually remember it. Through the images and stories of historians and others who lived it, what they received, they handed down to us, to me. Some stories are real, others are made up to reflect what was real so we can feel what the war would have made us feel had we been there to live it and to fight it. One such story most of you probably know well, it bleeds out of the movie that is Saving Private Ryan. At the end of the movie, the captain who has led a squad of soldiers to find a mother's only surviving son among the several sons who had gone off to fight in World War II sits dying at the end of a major battle. Private Ryan kneels weeping at his side. The captain, peering off aimlessly across the scorched once-urban landscape before him, pauses, it seems, to reflect upon his successful mission. Though he has almost lost his entire squad of men in the effort to save Private Ryan, he has successfully executed his orders. He has found Private Ryan. He has kept him safe and now that reinforcements have come, he has delivered him on his way back home to the United States and his grieving mother. The captain knows now that there is not much time before he will join most of his men in death. It is at that clarifying moment of recognition that he gathers his strength and steadies his resolve. His Herculean effort to get Private Ryan back to his mother has cost him his own chance to return to the wife he loves. With what little strength that yet endures in his frail, wounded frame, he reaches out and he beckons Private Ryan to come close. When the private complies, the captain issues his final order. He whispers two words that will resonate loudly for the rest of the young soldier's life. He says, Earn this. Earn this. Live up to this. Live your life as though you were living in gratitude for the gift that others have given their lives this day to give to you. Earn this. God, seeing the struggle of humankind, wanting not to risk losing us to the wars we wage with each other, with creation and within ourselves, sent Jesus to save us. Jesus, too, surrendered his life in fulfilling his task. In this Jesus story, we are all of us. Private Ryan, in the midst of wars and rumors of wars, in our politics, domestic and international, in our homes, in our race and gender relations, in our relationship with our planet, in our schools, in our families, in our churches, we are fighting, we are dying, we feel like we are losing feel like we are up against overwhelming, unbeatable odds, and all of a sudden, God, through the sending of Jesus, finds us and fights for us to save us because to God we are just that valuable. God doesn't want to lose any more of us. And God doesn't get anything for this. God willingly, freely takes on the task because God's love is that strong. Even though we are what we are, even though we do what we do, we know we don't deserve what God does for us, and yet God does it anyway. Sends Jesus, surrenders Jesus to us, to our hatreds and prejudices and violence and divisiveness, pettiness and destructiveness. And even as all of that combines together and hangs Jesus up on that cross, Jesus' concern is not focused on himself, but on us. The captain dying focuses not on himself, but on Private Ryan. Earn this. At his communion meal, Jesus is focused not on himself, but on us. Jesus wouldn't have said it, so I'll say it for him. We need to earn this. That is what I hear when I hear him saying, do this in remembrance of me. I hear him saying, earn this. Remember Jesus' trauma Remember Jesus is breaking. Remember Jesus is bleeding. Remember this, not just in your head, not just in your piety, not just in your prayers, not just in your spiritual discipline, not just in your worship service, not just in your church, but out there in the streets, in the financial centers, in the political capitals, in the homeless shelters, in the unemployment centers, in the public schools, in the impoverished, racially segregated situations and circumstances of life. Remember and earn this. As our grand civic hope for a democratic way of equitable life for all people dies, a slow asphyxiation on the country's redlined city streets, the weight of racism bearing down upon its neck, crushing its larynx so it can no longer cry out for help. It helps to remember the life and death of Martin Luther King Jr. Were you there when they killed him? Do you remember a modern day lamb slaughtered because he was standing? But like Jesus, this modern lamb was no inoffensive lamb. He earns the slaughter that comes his way. To be sure, that's an odd thing to say, and yet it is an accurate representation of both John's apocalypse and some of the key transformational moments in the history of the black church. Theologian Theofa Smith offers this on the work of Martin Luther King Jr. He says, this new feature of the King phenomenon was the crafting of homeopathic performances in which a sufficiently small instance of a social disorder is rendered efficacious for exposing and thereby countering that disorder. By deploying a small amount of nonviolent resistance, King drew out the reactionary violence of racial injustice and transformed it. Intentionally drew it out against himself and his followers. And when a shocked United States and world population witnessed the horrible violence unleashed against the nonviolent protesters, the very lamb like wrath of their outrage rained down in the form of executive, legislative, judicial, and martial intervention and reform. One can say that the civil rights protesters who were beaten, water hosed, bombed, threatened, tortured, and even killed were like the lamb slaughtered but one would not properly call them victims, even if their victory did come with a tragic cost. At the very moment their oppressors executed their violence against them, the moment of their symbolic slaughter, their battle was won. They drew it out. King and the civil rights activists who followed him were witnesses to the equality of African-Americans. In a hostile Jim Crow environment where segregation, based on the inequality of African Americans, was backed up by the force of municipal and state law, they stood up and witnessed to a contrary truth. In that sense, they earned the retaliatory, reactionary response they received. They drew it out. They earned it. Someone sitting at a segregated lunch counter or defiantly plopping herself down in the front of a bus when she had been legally consigned to the back of the bus will earn the abuse she receives. Just as John of Patmos earned his exile, just as the lamb earned his slaughter, just as the followers of the lamb who dare to stand up and witness to a truth that contradicts the declared truth of racial hatred will earn theirs. These are not sacrificial victims. These are fully engaged, nonviolent activist witnesses. Consider King's thoughts about his own suffering. As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways that I could respond to my situation, either to react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. Recognizing the necessity for suffering, I have tried to make of it a virtue. If only to save myself from bitterness, I have attempted to see my personal ordeals as an opportunity to transform myself and heal the people involved in the tragic situation which now obtains. King attempted to conjure suffering into a therapeutic cure. Recognizing the necessity of suffering, though, is not necessarily the same thing as valorizing it. What is the necessity of suffering for King, anyway? Really, there is none. Had he retreated from the cause, had he just gone somewhere and sat down, the suffering he endured would not only have been unnecessary, it would have disappeared. The suffering the civil rights activists endured was not necessary in the sense that it was divinely ordained by God. It was necessary in the sense that many powerful people and forces in the South and elsewhere so wanted to maintain segregation that they could be counted upon to use force against anyone trying to disrupt it. Suffering was not King's goal. He clarifies, suffering in itself is not redemptive, nor is it ordained by God. Rather, it is contrary to Christian principles of unity and proper behavior. King's goal was the transformation of an oppressive social situation. He was, however, willing to endure the suffering his activist behavior earned in order to bring that transformation about Undeserved suffering is often well earned, not in a sacrificial or redemptive sense, but in a transforming, conjuring sense. To conjure transformation, to earn such transformation, one must learn to wield power constructively as Jesus did, as King did. Theologian Anthony Penn recognizes that King's nonviolence was still a will to power, a will to use the power of nonviolence to craft a beloved community. Penn writes, In later years, King recognized that the inhumanity of white Americans toward black Americans was more more systemic than he initially realized. As a result, King shifted his emphasis away from love and moral persuasion as the counterbalance of dwarfed moral conscience to justice and nonviolent coercion as the demand of love. Hence, love had to be combined with acquired power. Martin Luther King Jr. himself was quite specific. He writes, power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Could it be that this emphasis on the necessity of power is the reason why John of Patmos finds it necessary before he introduces Jesus Christ as the slaughtered lamb to announce him as the mighty lion of Judah? I think so. John thinks the two titles belong together. In the end, neither subverts the other. The lion reveals a lamb, the lamb remains a lion. It, it, the lion conquers through predatory weakness. That's Martin Luther King Jr. An observer of his nonviolent active engaged in acerbic resistance would not have been wrong to describe King as a lion for justice and equality. The way of the slaughtered lamb is how the lion manifests itself in the world. In other words, the predatory way of the lion is the conquering way of the slaughtered lamb. So it is that Jesus conquers despite his death on the cross. So it is that Martin Luther King Jr. transforms despite his assassination on that balcony. King remembered Jesus' death, the lamb slaughter, and he earned it. I did not say he deserved it. Jesus did not deserve what happened to him. He earned what happened to him. By his love, by his words, by his rep- representation of God's transformational future, breaking into a world that was hell-bent on preserving its human present, Jesus earned his cross. By his desperate fight for a world where all God's children were judged not on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character, King earned his cross. And I think this is why Jesus wants us to remember his broken body and his spilled blood. So like King, we will earn this. Do you think that when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, that all he really wanted was for us to eat some bread, drink some wine, speak some liturgy, do we think that's all he really wanted when that wasn't all he really did? He didn't just break bread. He broke tradition, broke laws, broke barriers, broke injustices, and then to help them remember all that, he broke the bread. We've got baking on our minds. What kind of bread? Loaf or wafer? Gluten or gluten-free? Baked-in house or bought-out house? We're fixated on bread. We must remember what the bread represents and earn this. He didn't just pour wine. He spilled his blood so he could write a new covenant between us and God in that blood so that we could live into being our best selves and our relationships with God and each other. But we've got pouring on our minds, grape juice or wine, Manischewitz or Merlot, individual little glasses or one common cup. We're fixated on the drink. We must remember what the drink represents and earn this. That's why we remember Jesus' broken body and spilled blood, so we can earn it. I've only visited Memphis, Tennessee one time, I was there for a meeting, but getting to the Lorraine Lorraine Motel, now a museum, where Martin Luther King, Jr. was killed, visiting that balcony where he died, that was more important to me than the meeting. In fact, to this day, I don't remember what meeting I was attending in Memphis, but I will forever remember how I felt standing there, looking first through the glass into the room where King stayed, and then to the balcony where he died. It's important to remember what he did, why he did it, how he lived, why he died. Standing there, you can almost hear the whisper across the tumultuous times that have continued since King's death. Earn this. For I remembered from the Lord What I also handed on to you to remember that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. Earn this. Amen. We have so much to remember in our story, so much for which we are grateful. Let us not forget as we move forth from this place, let us carry the memory and love of what God and God's people have done for us and let us respond in kind. And now may the grace of God, the love of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest, remain and abide with each of us now henceforth and forever. Amen.